But did you start? Can I have the... Here, I'll take these. Hey Jane, it's good to see you. Um, for a prayer tonight, I, I'm not going to read a poem. I didn't read a poem last night. I just skipped right by the time. But for the prayer tonight, I'd like to recall the reading from Monday because we were in, um, Suzanne and I try to go to Mass in the mornings when they offer it during the week. And I was grateful for the prayer this Monday. Um, so I'd like to just um, take off from the readings and make them our prayer um, for tonight. The, the letter from Paul was this, he, as he does so often, he goes, brothers and sisters, and so I say it to you. Um, I, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to live in a manner worthy of the call you have received, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another through love, striving to preserve the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace, one body and one Spirit, as you were also called, to one hope of your, um, of your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. So, Paul, please... If you would intercede for us, um, offer that prayer on our behalf. Um, <laughs> amazing person, um, when you were faced with a prospect of either leaving this world and going to God, you wanted to go to God more than anybody. Um, you loved him, your whole life showed that. But you didn't want to leave us. And given the choice, you chose to stay here to help us. Help us now with your prayers um, to do all that we can to um, go to the God, to be with you and him and all the others who share in, um, in our communion together. Um, Christ, your words to us, um, um, or, the, or Matthew describing you, um, describe the incident when you called Matthew out. Matthew was a tax collector. Um, you called him and said, um, follow me. Um, Matthew got up from the table, looked around, wondering why you chose him. And it had to be a startling moment because his whole life was given to the world. He measured everything he did by his success in his career. And everybody looked at him as if he was doing something strange because what he did was leave that world behind um, to follow you. The Pharisee saw this and said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with the tax collector and sinners? He heard this and said, Those who are well do not need a physician, but the sick do. Go and learn the meaning of the words, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Include us in that group, all of us. Um, or maybe... For those that are more fortunate, who, who don't need your help, um, but for those of us who feel the weight of our sins, um, strengthen in us a spirit of humility and mercy. Um, you wanted mercy, not sacrifice. Uh, 
Help us to bring that spirit to all that we do. I ask a special blessing on the work that we're doing. Um, help us to be strengthened by what we learn about ourselves from these works. The works that we've been reading recently are pagans. They didn't know you the way we do, but they did. And they have something to teach us, just as they did our church fathers. So help us to be open here to see the way you're at work in the world that so often we don't see. Um, we offer these prayers in your name, Christ our Lord. Amen. Okay, um, let's go. A lot ahead of us here. By the way, for, for those of you who... Um, I, um, are you all going on to that line and getting the, the outline for the class? Because if you're not, I, I shouldn't do it. You know, I, it, I'm doing this in place of the board because I'm used to having a board in front of me where I'd put down an outline and I don't have any longer. But do, are, are, are all of yes. you or most of you going to that? Oh, good. Okay. really helped. Oh, good. If, if those of you who went know that the outline, by the way, I've made some corrections on the outline late after I put it on. So it's, it may be a little bit differently from... Um, the way it was when I first put it on. But go check that out. Um, and in included in that packet on, the, um, on Virgil is a file called The Universality of Aeneas's Quest. You should all look at that because it's, it, it's too focused for me to go into those passages. There's a good number of passages um, in which Virgil is dealing with the universality of Rome and, and what Aeneas brings to his quest. And they all go to Christ, and, and, and more, more directly to the Catholic Church. So um, go back to those two files, the, out, the um, outline and the universality file. Um, I, will, I will probably make some additional changes tomorrow in the, out, the uh, outline. Sorry, not the outlook, the outline. Um, I think there's some spelling corrections that I didn't pick. I was just too rushed today. I had some appointments and other things to do. So so you might check it out tomorrow and, and get a cleaner copy. But anyway, they're there, and I think they'll help. Today, I, I um, gave you a more detailed um, description, outline of what's going on in books 11 and 12 because they're the end of the Aeneid, and I thought they might be particularly helpful. But it asks more reading, and you have a little bit more reading to do with them. So, But they're there, okay, for your help. Okay, let's, let's start. Just a couple of review items. Very, very important. So um, we're going to leave the pagan world. Um, if we don't finish up the Aeneid tonight, we will finish it up next week for sure. If we do go on to next week, we'll only spend a little bit of time on it. Um, we'll, we'll start Boethius for sure. So be sure you guys have got the Boethius copy. It's the Penguin edition. It's the one we'll be using, so it would help if you got that. But right now, we're leaving this pagan world. You guys, in an amazing... God bless your souls. God bless your souls. In an amazing way, you've done something... Lots of people, you receive something that lots of people receive and don't even know that it's there. It's this whole pagan world that prepared for Christ, 
A lot, a lot of people didn't do this, but Homer and Virgil are distinct because what they did anticipated Christ in amazing ways. We're about to leave that world and enter a Christian world, okay? And the amazing thing about Virgil is that he carries that Homeric world with him and transforms it in a way that more closely approximates Christ. So um, it's a real gift to us because it helps us see things about our church that often people don't see. But one of the most important things Virgil has done, it's one of the themes that I've been repeating weekly since we've met, is this theme of the city. It's the, the, the central, the governing intuition at the center of the action, the plot, this whole action from beginning to end, what we call a plot or an action, is the founding of the city, this extraordinary city that's different from any other city that was ever created. Egypt, Babylon, Alexandria, you know, Beijing, you, wherever we go. Um, and most people don't think of the city as that important, but it's really important for us. According to our Christian view, we started in a garden, but our ultimate end is the New Jerusalem. It's to be in God's city with God, Christ, and the Father and Spirit as, as our Lord's. Okay. You know from the work that we've done that the first city was founded by Enoch, Cain's son, after Cain's exile. So the city comes into existence with a paradoxical nature. Um, it, it comes into existence and it shows everything great about man. That man can create this world um, on it, in which he can live on his own. So the city comes into existence when man tries to be self-sufficient, when he lives without God. Because remember, Cain went into exile. He left God's presence. So the city arises in our effort to try to live without him. So it's always paradoxical. It's a cutting-edge sword. We do these extraordinary things in the city, but they're always undermined in some way. The beautiful thing about what Homer did in the Iliad and Odyssey is he showed us this thing, particularly in the Iliad. In the Iliad, where Homer um, gives us an image of what in some ways is a paradigmatic battle. Let me put it that way. I want to put it as strongly as I can. That this battle is between East and West fundamentally. It's not just about Athens or Troy. It's East and West. So in that battle, two civilizations are coming together. It's not just a simple city, Troy. Because the Achaeans came over with help from all the peoples in the Aegean Islands, from everywhere. We know that from the, all the kings that are present because they're kings of different cities. And we know that the Trojans received help from all the kings around them, all over Asia. So in Homer's mind, and Herodotus, who writes the history on the Greeks, they all saw the same thing, that at, at, at issue were these fundamental differences between two civilizations. And I believe they're so fundamental that they're still alive. I mean, they're basically, in some ways, between the West and Europe and America and Asia. You can also say, in some ways, between Christianity and Islam. You know, I mean, they're just these fundamental differences that still, with problems that we still have to bear and deal with. But the most important thing is that the, um, what Homer showed us was the conflict between East and West. Troy was destroyed. And 
we get a sense of the of the cost of that for Achilles and Odysseus in the Homeric world. What Virgil does is go beyond it because he sees that there's something greater than anything that was present in that Trojan War. Out of the ashes of that war, out of everything great that men could do to produce a city, was this thing called Rome. And we've more and more clearly got an idea of what that is by watching it be destroyed, but then also watching Aeneas try to found these cities that all failed. There was something wrong with all of them. Betrayals, greed, lust, you know, Carthage, all the other cities. Um, we got a, um, a, a proleptic image of, of um, Carthage burning in the last scene with Dido when she takes her life. Because Carthage is going to go down in the, in the Punic Wars. So this image of the city that Rome, as Virgil saw it, was the very greatest thing that man could do on the world. It was a testimony to everything great about men and the cost of it all along and even more particularly when um, Aeneas, or, yeah, Aeneas gets to Italy because we're going to see the most vicious kind, constant vicious kinds of wars and, the, and in, in large ways they're ethnic and racial. So we know that this city that's going to come into being has this extraordinary cost. And Virgil's not a woolly-eyed romantic. He knows that this is the very greatest thing that man can produce, and it's still not enough. It's still not enough. That the cost of Rome will be constant devastations and battles. So he's no utopian thinker. He's not an idealist. The great courage, this is for me as a reader of Virgil, the the great thing that Virgil did for us is that he faced squarely everything utopian. You know, we want to make everything nice. We want to recover everything. We want to make everything okay. That the cost of what we do on this earth is always greater than we know. It's like he understood the fall um, um, before we did as Christians. And I'm going to say this now because I'm afraid I'm going to forget if I, if I wait on it. I've, I've said before that um, we can't prove with any certainty that Virgil read the Old Testament, but it's the, the more I've stayed with Virgil, the harder it is to see him not having read it. And let me just give a suggestion here because it goes to the, you know, what we're doing. We'll get to this in a few minutes. When we move to the end of the Aeneid, we realize that um, the coming into existence of this city this thing called Rome, is um, the result of not only all of Aeneas' struggle, that this hero, this image of a hero for Western man, the, the image of what a man is called to be, is, is not only the labor and the self-sacrifice and the endurance and the hope and the going ahead, even when he kept failing, he couldn't stop. As we move to the end, what we, what we become aware of is what I call in the notes that I've given you, converging realities, that we get prophecies everywhere. Um, Latinus has had a prophecy that Lavinia will marry somebody. Um, the, um, the Lydian or the um, Etruscan king is waiting on, the, um, on somebody from um, a foreign land to come rule his people after they get rid of Mezentius. Um, 
uh, Aeneas's prophecy on the Tiber, his receiving the ve- the armor from Venus, in which he gets a vision of the future, over and over, or and, and another one at the very end of the story when Aeneas um, is moving towards um, 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 Latium, the city where he will fight uh, um, Turnus. Turnus has come with his armies to um, ambush him. And um, he gets word that, Turnus gets word that Camille is dead and Turnus rushes back. And Aeneas comes through that pass just after he leaves. Now, we can all call that coincidence. (laughs) We can't. That's not what Virgil's doing. What he's doing is showing all these things are, these prophecies coming from everywhere, these coincidences. It's what I'm calling, um, what I call it, um, <laughs> converging, converging realities. Um, if you read the Old Testament, God, it's stunning. And Virgil was, I mean, he's no ordinary reader. If you read the Old Testament, you cannot read it without being, without coming out of the Old Testament saying, there are prophecies everywhere all hinting at this person to come. And what's Virgil doing? And, and we've talked about the fourth ecologue. He's talking about this child who's going to come into the world. He didn't have the Old Testament the way the Jews had it. But what he's doing in the Aeneid is showing that all these things are converging. And, it, and if anybody had their mind on, and most people don't, you can't say coincidence. You can, co- you can say coincidence, one or two things happen. When you have four or five or six things happening, they're all pointing to the same thing, it's not a coincidence. There's a design. There's a providential order at work. And the interesting thing about all that's happening, and this is where we'll go tonight in our work when we start looking at the chapters, is all of them are bringing into the world a new kind of love. So... If we go back to the Iliad and see Achilles' giving up his life, admitting his fault, it's only when he says, I failed, I let everybody down, and he gives up his life and goes back into the war that nobody can defeat him. It's only when Odysseus loses his life, when he's you know, on his adventures learning from these archetype figures, and mostly feminine, you know, of the, of the nine and a half years, he's nine years, um... I don't know what to call it. Submission's not quite the right word, but um, he's powerless. He has the help of the gods. But he's learning that he's got to deal with something feminine before he can go home. And you know from my reading of it that, that when he kills the suitors, I, I believe that in some sense we're meant to see that in that act, he's killing off everything lawless um, that's called into existence um, by Penelope because of her beauty. Odysseus has to answer that. He, he cannot be reunited with his wife until he answers those things. So in both the Iliad and the Odyssey, you've got an image, a, a heroic image, an, an image of, of something potentially heroic in man if he will learn to deny himself. But in the Aeneas, it's taken to a, a different level, a different height. Because Aeneas goes on for eight years, failing constantly, and then has to go to war, and we'll see what he does in the war. But the whole direction of it is towards this thing called Rome, 
and the fact that Rome will be raised on this spirit of complete self-sacrifice, a surrender to the God's will. So we have an image of a new hero, a kind of piety, a reverence for the gods that takes us beyond Homer's world. So this, this great theme of the city, the self-sacrifice that's the giving up to the common good, living for others, and the love that it's called into being. And if, you, if you'll take a look at that file that I sent you called The Universality of... You'll see um, how it speaks to this, because when Aeneas comes to Rome, he brings the experiences of three continents, Asia, Europe, Africa. Dido was in Africa, in Carthage. Carissa was Asian, and um, Lavinia's um, European. So he brings three marriages, he brings his experiences from all these continents. So what he brings to Rome is far more universal. Rome is meant to be seen as the city for all people. Not blacks, not whites, not Hispanics, not Asians. For everybody. It's only when um, people can get past their ethnic, you know, tribal identities and learn to see each other as human beings, that we're all children of God, that we can arrive at the peace that, um, you know, that's behind it. But, but once again, just let me, I don't want to romanticize this. Remember, when we were in the underworld and Anchises showed Aeneas, you know, what was going on, everybody in the underworld was mutilated, cut up, physically maimed, they were all carrying with them the wounds of war. And when they drank from the river of Lethe, they were going to go back into the world. And we know it's going to happen when they go back in the world. So Virgil is really clear. Rome is this extraordinary thing. Um, but it's not enough. There's something more. And the beauty of what he's doing is he's pointing towards something more even if it's not fully realized and won't be fully realized until Christ. Is that clear? That's a lot, but it seems to me that's what's at the heart of the what we've been dealing with. Is that clear? Any questions about all any of that? Heather, you're a teacher, so I know you've got a question. I've got to unmute. Can you unmute yourself? Um, just a comment about Achilles's um, shield because I went back into the Iliad and I looked at that wow, to good compare for you. it to yeah. Aeneas's shield and yeah. it really is a beautiful comparison because on, on Achilles' shield we see like kind of like what you're talking about we see the city of peace and the city of war and at the center of that is the whole cosmic universe Yeah, and then on on um, on Aeneas's shield, it's more focused on Rome, and so that's the weight that he carries on his shoulders. Um, and I just think it's so the way that they that the shields reference the two worlds that these men live in, yeah, um, and what is coming into being is really it's really amazing to see. Yeah, I'm so glad for you, Heather. Good for you. One of the other things, too, boy, bless your soul, bless your soul. There may be hope for your students. <laughs> Somebody stop me. I can't stop that. It just comes out. Sorry, God. Can't stop it. God. 
pray for me, please. One <laughs> um, one of the things I enjoy about um, 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 Aeneas's shield is that he looks at it in a sense with this extraordinary sense of wonder, because it's all going to be real. It's not idealized, you know, the way it is right. in the Greek world. We're not in an, we're out of that idea. We're in time with the effects of time, and he's seeing all these events. They're going to they're going to be real. They will happen. And how can he understand them? You know, I mean, it, it's just, he sees the future laid out in front of him. It's got to leave him with a sense of wonder and trust and hope and confusion. You know, what's, so I'm so glad you went there because the you could almost look at those um, two scenes, compare and contrast, and get a pretty good idea of the two worlds just by looking at the two of them. So I think you're right on, right on. Anybody, anybody else? Um, okay, the, um, in book six and seven, we went to the underground to, um, to learn about the afterlife um, and what um, was important for Aeneas to learn from that world. And then, um, receiving his uh, mission, his calling from his father. And interestingly, when he, when he leaves the underworld and goes into the back into the return, that is when he leaves the world of dreams and that afterlife, and he returns to the world, he returns through the ivory gates. And remember the ivory gates, ivory's beautiful. The gates of horn are ugly. He went through the ivory gates, gates. I'm just not, I'm not sure what to make of that, but it's hard for me to read it without thinking, Ivory's more attractive. He chose what I think most people would be drawn to instead of what's ugly. But um, he goes up through the world of illusions and dreams, and he's going to go back into a world in which um, um, he's going to face nothing but wars, and the wars will devastate for a long time before. The whole aim will then will to bring these different tribes, these um, different groups in Italy together, but the cost of it is going to be this bloody war and betrayals. Um, after book six, we went um, into book seven where we saw Juno stirring up Electo, that demonic fury, the, or harpy, it's a feminine figure. And part of the beauty of that for me is that, um, um, and I want to really be clear here, we don't have the time to go through the passages, but um, but a lot of people have taken the position when they read Homer and Virgil that human beings are just playthings of the gods. I, I don't myself believe that. Um, you can look at what she does and say that men have no free will, you know, that she just um, takes possession of, she enters them stealthily and then works on them. And I don't think that's accurate. Um, um, if you look at the characters that she enters, and Amada the queen and Turnus, are the two central figures. They're already disposed to what they do. There is something in, in Amada as a woman who's very possessive of her daughter and wants to see this marriage take place. There's so much pride um, to join these two kingdoms because of the way it will elevate them. And Turnus is the same. He, he, he just had, I mean, it, it's the kind of male eagle that we've seen in so many of the heroes that so much of what he does is for his own pride. He, 
well, lots of his people are going to die in this war. In fact, when they have the, um, the council at the end, um, his advisor is going to say, you're doing all of this for your own glory. People are going to die. So I don't think she's... We're, we're meant to see that Virgil's denying man's free will, um, but, but I, I think part of the beauty of what um, Virgil does, he's so much closer to depicting evil as evil than Homer did. Homer shows the bad in people, and the gods play a role in, but Virgil's showing us real evil. I mean, there's something demonic in what she does, and in the characters in which she is most likely to work, we see a susceptibility to that evil. Um, so we watched Electo do her work. Um, it's set, even though Latinus and Aeneas have made this pact, it's broken. And Aeneas will go to war with Latinus and Turnus, and, and then suddenly, you know, the peoples will align. Aeneas is encouraged to go to Evander. That's where we left off last week. Um, and we, um, it was, a, I, that's a beautiful chapter because when we arrive there, we see the um, Arcadians um, practicing these religious rituals in which they're honoring um, Hercules because of his feats. And then Latinus shows him this, what to me is, what are some of the most wonderful passages in Aeneid. Because we're taken back into this primeval um, um, world of antiquity. It's the undeveloped wilderness, you know, in parts of Italy that will one day um, disappear because Rome and the cities will all take over. And so when Virgil describes this ancient primeval forest land, he doesn't aware that um, that world that he's describing has been overlaid by the world that he knows because he's living um, 70, you know, he died, what, 26 BC? He's living, you know, 30, 40 years before Christ comes. Rome is a sophisticated, probably the, the, the greatest city in the world. If any of you have seen the uh, Glad, um, Gladiator, that movie, if you remember when the gladiators come to Rome, they look at it now. I mean, they could, they, you know, they're all coming from these undeveloped areas. And they look at the Colosseum in disbelief that, that man could do something like that. Rome had to be one of the most extraordinary cities of the world. So when Virgil is describing Aeneas and Evander, he's doing it with a sense of what was at one time and, and, and something great that, here it is again, something great that Rome has done, but at the cost of this agrarian Arcadian world where men were at peace, closer to the land, not driven by greed or power, you know, or envy. Um, so we get this beautiful layover, these two times, um, in um, Virgil's description of um, Arcady. Um, okay, so let's... I want to go back to where we were last week. I, um, we left off in, in um, book um, nine. I don't want to spend much time here, but I, I do want to give a few minutes to the night raid. When Aeneas goes off to get help, um, he leaves Ascanius and all the other soldiers there um, to protect the fort. Turnus learns about it, and Turnus attacks the fort. 
And when he does, he sets fire to the fort and the ships. And there's that beautiful passage. I, I want to look at it. But this, that beautiful passage when the ships take off as if they're going to be burned. And then suddenly they're transformed into nymphs. And something miraculous happens. Um, but that's what's happening in the fort. Aeneas has gone to, to see Evander. Turnus attacks the fort. Um, two of the Trojans, Nisus and Eurelius, volunteer to get to Aeneas to call him back because um, the Trojans in the fort are in danger of being destroyed, killed. I, I, I just want to take a minute with this um, in, in Book 9. Um, hold on. Sorry. Glasses. In book nine, um, I mentioned last week, remember, these are the two men who were involved in the race when um, Aurelius fell and he tripped the leader because he wanted Nisus to win. And Virgil was very explicit. These two men loved each other. Um, he, there's nothing said explicitly about a homosexual relationship, but it's it's hard to believe that that, I don't know, we just don't know. Um, what we do know, if they were homosexual or not, is that these two men were very brave and they loved each other dearly. So when Nisus volunteered to go on this expedition, this, you know, this, to, to go get help from Aeneas, Aurelius is not going to be left behind because um, he loves Nisus. So he, the two offer to go... And all of this, remember, is set in contrast to Book 10 in the Iliad when Aeneas and Diomedes go out to, to uh, survey what the Trojans are doing and all they do is behead, behead the Trojans and bring back booty. That's all they do. We don't, we don't learn anything about any strategies of the Trojans. They just they go kill the men and come back. So once again... Um, Uh, we've got a contrast um, going forward. Um, the two men kill all the enemy that they can find. And on page 272, about line 500 in our book, um, Eurelius, who's younger, gets carried away um, with what he's doing. And um, at the bottom of page 272, it says... He came then to Messapus's company, their fires burning low, their tethered horses grazing the meadow. But now Nisus spoke in a curt whisper, for he saw his friend carried away by slaughter and lust for blood. Let us have done, he said, the dawn's at hand and dangerous. We've made them pay enough. We've cut our way through. Turning now, they left a quantity of booty, solid silver. So Nisus is wise enough to put a curb on Eurelius and leave booty behind. So it's clear that it isn't just getting booty. But as they're leaving, some of the Vulcans are returning, and the helmet that Aurelius had catches the light from the moon and gives the two men away on page 273. Nearing the camp and riding towards the rampart, they caught sight of the two Trojans over there who veered on the leftward path. Aurelius's helmet 
in the clear nights half darkness had betrayed him glimmering back as he had not foreseen dim rays of moonlight and the horseman took sharp notice of that sight troop leader volchen shouted soldiers halt where's the patrol now nicus gets away but they capture urelius and when nicus sees that um his friend is going to be killed um this is what happened sorry excuse me for a second Question. Go ahead. Wasn't the, wasn't the helmet taken off of one of the people they killed? Yeah. Okay, so in a sense, the fact that he took booty was what yes. did them. Yes. Okay. Yeah, but there's that comment, you know, that Nisa said enough, and so there's, but you're, yes, you're absolutely right. Um, when Nisa sees that his friend, the, the man that he loves, is captured, he puts himself forward when he's virtually escaped, and he says, this is on 275, no, me, me, here I am, I did it, take your swords to me. So once again, here's this act of self-sacrifice, I mean, it's not going to help, the Volscians are going to kill him, but he says, take me. Um, he had not dared do anything, he could not, heaven's my witness, and the stars that took down on us, all he did was care too much for a luckless friend. But while he clamored, Volscian's blade thrust hard, passed through the ribs, and breached the snow-white chest. Aurelius and death went reeling down. Um, and this is the, one of those Virgilian similes that shows how different his sensibility is from Homer's. Blood streamed down at his handsome length, his neck collapsing, let his head fall in his shoulder, as a bright flower cut by a passing plow will droop and wither slowly or a poppy bow its head upon its tired stalk when overborne by a passing rain. The vulnerability of the men, there's something sweet passing. We don't get anything close to that in Homer. They kill Nisus, and the next day, what they do is behead the two men and take the two heads, put them on sticks, and then parade them around in front of the, um, the, um, the stockade, the camp. And you know the outrage. Um, they, they taunt, um, let's see, go down on page 277. Um, Eurelius' mother, and she's one of the few women who went on with the Trojans. Remember, they left most of them behind. Um, she is hysterical. Then she filled heaven's air with knee keening. Must I see you even like this, Eurelius? You that were in these last days the comfort of my age could leave me. Could you, cruel boy, alone, send into danger? So had you no time for your poor mother's last farewell? Ah, God, you lie now in a strange land, carrying for Latin dogs and birds, and I, your mother, never took you, your body, out for burial." nor closed your eyes, nor washed your wounds, nor dressed you in the fine robe I'd been weaving for you. We could go on. Um, show me a scene like that in the Iliad Odyssey. We're not going to find it. This is a mother grieving the loss of her son. These men are arrogantly parading around, brutally uh, boasting, flaunting. Um, so, once again, we see Virgil taking Homer, the tenth book in the Iliad, and utterly, completely rewriting it because 
in the in the Iliad, both men come back. Diomedes and Odysseus both return with booty. In this book, neither men returns. And not only that, but they're brutally slayed, and their heads are taken off, and the mother is forced to watch this. <clears throat> so, Virgil <coughs> is much more honest about the effects on people of their wounds, their hurts. This is a mother being forced to watch these men brutalize her son. Um, um, remember on um, what happens is um, 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 Turnus sets fire to the uh, stockade and the ships are released um, and turn into um, nymphs and set out. Um, the the beauty of it is that it, remember if, if you remember the reading is that um, um, Sibylle had um, asked Zeus or sorry Jupiter if he would make the the ships immortal because they were taken from her trees. And he wouldn't do that, but he said that um, when Aeneas reached Rome, um, they would be transformed. Um, where was I thinking? God, I don't want to. I don't want to forget this. Um, oh, oh, oh! It's so important. God, amazing. I don't want to lose this. Um, just a thought. I mean, I offer it as a thought. It's it, what struck me when I was reading this, and it, it just makes me wonder again if Virgil didn't read the Old Testament, and if he did, because he was such a deep reader, he would have seen things that lots of people would never have seen. You all are familiar with this word, the theosis. I know I've written it on the board before. T-H-E-I-O-S-I-S, -S, theosis. I should have put it up on a piece of paper, but T-H-E-I-O-S-I-S, -S, theosis. It's an important word, write it down. It's the ancient Greek or the Old Testament, um, New Testament word the, the church fathers used to describe what happened um, when Christ took on our nature and died and uh, was restored to life and invited us men to share in that act. The word theosis means um, um, gods, or sorry, humans gradually becoming gods. That um, Christ took on our, this is the way the old church fathers used to put it, Christ took on our human nature, shared his divine nature with us, so that we could share his divine nature with him. How could it be any other way, if you think about it? If Christ came and took on our nature to answer a sin that we couldn't, he sanctified everything in nature. He took on our nature. And in doing that, when he returned, because he returned in our nature, he's not the word now, he's Christ. He carries our human nature. This is, I can't get my head around. He carries that nature back into the Trinity. So we picture the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, as infinite, you know, begotten, one with the Father in all things, infinite, eternal, um, timeless. If he empties himself, those are Paul's words, if he empties himself and takes on our human nature and then returns in our human nature, that human nature is a part of Godhood. 
So the church fathers called that, they used that word theosis to describe human beings gradually becoming godlike. God um, took on human nature, <coughs> gave something of his na divine nature to humans, sorry. He get. God, he gave something divine to our nature so that we could become, we could share in his divine nature. <clears throat> now that was a standard, I mean that was a, one of the fundamental beliefs of the mysteries of our faith in the early church. When I, when I think about what happens here with the ships, you know, when they're transformed into nymphs, immortal, things like that happen in the Fellowship of the Ring. People just, you know, they just accept it as some strange thing happening, but stop and think about it for a moment. I have trouble with this actually a little bit myself. It's hard for me to see trees or dogs or, you know, things from our earth in heaven, but if um, God gave us something of his divine nature so that as humans we could share in that divine nature, is that, is that not, it, is it possibly true of other things in nature? <clears throat> We believe that um, bread and wine are no longer just bread and wine in the consecration. That they in fact become the body and blood of Christ. That earthly, worldly things can partake of something divine, be transformed. I just put it as a question. I don't want to press this because it's... But I'm always stunned when I think about these moments in the Aeneid, you know, particularly a moment like this where these ships are suddenly transformed into nymphs that will be eternal, um, sharing something divine. Just a thought, just a thought. Um, okay. Book, book 10. Um, wait, before we leave, so Turnus comes in, the, um, the Trojans are cavalier enough to open the gates for the Turnus and his men and um, Turnus comes in and kills them in right away um, and um, I've got to sorry I've got to find this um, and he's trapped and it takes a while for the men to get a hold of themselves to confront him and when they do they finally force him to um, to flee and he jumps into the river and escapes. One of the ironies about that moment is while he would, this is I think, and if you read it, the, the passage you'll see, I think Virgil's really clear. That's an indication of Turnus's arrogance and I, wanted, I want you to hold on to this because what Aeneas does in, at the end is the opposite of this in some ways. He could have set fire to the whole thing and, and let the, his own troops in and destroyed you know, the people in the stock of the Trojans there, he didn't. Um, he was too caught up in the fury of the fight to do anything like that. So he, he lets his pride get a hold of him at a moment when, if he had kept his wits, he could have destroyed the Trojans. He didn't, okay? Um, one of the Trojans is mocking the, or I mean, sorry, one of the... Um, one of Turnus's men is mocking the uh, 
The Trojans, sorry, for a second if you can. If I can find this, sorry. Top of page 287, I think is what you're thinking. No, you're ahead of me. Oh. I think, hold on. Oh, wait, wait, wait. God bless you. You are good. How'd you know that? I didn't even say anything. Is that you, Melody? <laughs> um, no, hold on, it's not. Hold on, just... It's not when... Yeah, it's here. One of the um, Etruscans, um, or sorry, the... The Rutulians um, is mocking the Trojans um, on page 281 at the bottom of the page. This is about line 825 or so. In days before he'd been used to scare wild game in flight, now with one shot he brought a strong man down, Numinous Romulus by added name, who late had married Turnus's young sister. Now the captain strode ahead and shouted boast that he had or had not dignity. Inflated as he was by new status, he swashbuckled and cried, What? Not ashamed to be besieged again, pinned by a rampart, walled yourself away from... You all get the illusions, right? They were in this position in Troy, about to be destroyed. So he's taunting them with that defeat. Does everybody hear that? Everybody knows about that war. Everybody in the world knew about that war. It was the war of the world. What God would Mandus brought you to Italy? Here are no Atridae. Here is no artful talker like Ulysses. So both Achilles and Ulysses are scorned. Our newborn sons we take to the river first to harden them in wilderness waves. So we're not going to be um, we're not going to be we're, we're we have tougher men than even Achilles or Odysseus. Our boys are keen at hunting. They wear their forest out. Their pastimes are horse taming and archery. What he's doing is looking to the Trojans and saying, you are all effeminate. Look at your clothes. You're all dressed up. You're too pretty. You're not manly. We're going to kill you. You're going to lose again. A spear reversed will go to an ox in slow age and feebles no man's bravery or vigor. We're too good. No, we press down helms on our white hair and all our days delight in bringing home flesh, fresh plunder. And in good freebooter fare, you people dress in yellow and glowing red. You live for sloth, and you go in for dancing. Sleeves to your tunics, ribbons to your caps. Phrygian women, in truth, not Phrygian men. Climb Mount Didymon, where the doubtful pipes make soft for the effete, where the small drums and the Idaean mothers bear a Scythian boxwood flute are always wheedling you. Leave war to fight him and get up the sore. Well... Can you insult a man more than that? <laughs> it's just, <laughs> you, you woman, um, we men, do you really think you have a chance? So what happens at that, mo that moment? As he broadcast these insults and hard words, Ascanius could not abide the man. He turned and set a shaft on his bowstring, taunt horse gut, and he drew his arms apart, then stood to make petition to Hydra. He makes a prayer that's so crucial. He doesn't let the man's taunting get to him 
the man didn't pray to Jupiter, he just taunts. The first thing that Ascanius does is say a prayer. Almighty Jupiter only give consent to this attempt, that he, um, and you know what happens. He, um, he lets go of the arrow, and um, it says on top of 283, the springing shaft under the tension made a fearful whistle flying to pass clean through the head of Remulus, cleaving both temples with its shank of steel. Go on, please. <laughs> Mock our courage with windy talk, twice conquered Phrygian return, this answer to the Rutulians. Well, that's Ascanius. The, the troops get behind him. Blessed be your newfound manhood, child. By striving so, men reach the stars, dear son of gods and sire of gods to come. All faded wars will quiet down and justly in the end under descendants of Iscarius, for Troy no longer bounds you. Now all of the men are going to take Ascanius and um, withdraw him from the war. So let me stop for a minute, because this is, a lot is happening in a scene that, you know, did you get all that? A lot is happening um, in this scene. What's the difference between what's going on here and anything going on in the Odyssey involving uh, um, Telemachus? What's the difference? Because we've got another parallel, right? What's the parallel scene in the Odyssey and what's the difference? What is Rome? God, this thing, it's just stunning. This, I mean, I just don't want anybody to lose this. Rome is not only the seat of the papacy. As a city, its roots in the world, not angelic. This is not some, it's not the Jewish Jerusalem. This is an earthly kingdom. But there's something represented in Rome that, that um, for Virgil's side of it, you cannot find anywhere else. What's the parallel scene of this in the Odyssey, and what does Virgil do to change it? Connie, I wish you knew how, how much I love that meditating expression of yours. You are, do you have any thoughts on this? All of you look so thoughtful right now. I, don't, I almost don't want to disturb you. God, you such a good, good expression on you all. Where'd you all go? All the pictures. You guys come back here. Heather, Marilyn, Mary Jane, Tina, you all come back. <laughs> Bob, Karen, you guys have any thoughts on this? What, what's, what's the parallel in the Odyssey and what's the difference? No, notice how your wife conveniently gave that over to you, Bob. <laughs> <laughs> okay, let me let me flesh out. Any last? Can anybody name the parallel scene in the Odyssey? Is it when Odysseus kills uh, the first suitor? Yeah, but what happens? What's the condition that sets off that battle? Uh, well, um, the suitor, uh, now I can't remember, was making fun of the old man. No, there was, uh, there was a, there was, after that, there was a contest that everybody oh. had, so go yes, ahead. Yeah, the 
shoot the arrow through all the axes. Right. But before they could do that, somebody had to string the bow. Oh, okay. And Telemachus has uh, tried three times and then... Oh, wow. Good for uh, you. Odysseus wouldn't let him try the wow. fourth time. Yeah. I think people say he can't... You couldn't. I believe Telemus could. I think that's the indication. That here now. Now with that back, okay. The, the, we've got the bowstringing contest in the in the or the Odyssey, okay. And the the purpose of it is to test the goodness and strength of men. None of the suitors can do it. Telemachus tries three times. He fails, and in the next attempt, he's about to do it, and Odysseus steps in. So I think. I think we're meant to feel that Telemachus has stepped into his manhood, that he could shoot it. Immediately after that, the war starts and Achilles or Odysseus starts shooting people. Telemachus makes his first kill. And we've got the battle between Odysseus and his son and his helpers and the hundred suitors. And, you know, you've read it. What's the difference between what happens there with Telemachus and what happens here with Ascanius in this stockade? really important for Rome. It's so different. Go and jump in. Well, could Telemachus have done what he did without his dad? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. There's no way they could have defeated those suitors without him. Is, is Acanius' father around? He's not there. So put this together again. Remember, he lost Palinurus, the, the uh, pilot to the ship. He lost his nurse, Caeda. He has to go into Italy without a nurse. Odysseus comes back to his nurse, Euryclea. When the battle starts, Telemachus joins, but he follows his father. Ascanius steps forward on his own. When this man taunts the Trojans horribly in a humiliating way, he steps forward and kills the man. And immediately all the men surround him and protect him. Why? He's done this extraordinarily brave thing because they do not want him dying because he's the heir. He's going to be the one who will continue Aeneas' work. He will found the other cities that will lean to Rome because we don't see the founding here. So it's a very, very different. He's, he's both more independent than Telemachus, braver and more concerned with the common good. He's fighting for Rome. You know. Um, I also don't remember because it's been a long time since I read um, the Odyssey, but and Eliot. But here he prays to Jupiter. Right. And so he seeks guidance and help and so on from the gods which didn't happen before, I don't think. Yep. Yep. Yeah, good, Sue. Is everybody following? Now tell me, go back to my question that I've asked before. If anybody had read, if anybody was reading the Aeneid who had not read the Iliad and the Odyssey, would they be able to see any of its deeper meanings? There's no way. You can't, I mean, what, what Virgil shows us is that we can't read well without a tradition because time is layered. 
There's so much more going on before us that we don't see. What he did in this work is carry that past forward. So whatever's going on in the historical moment carries more of the past with it. So it's a much richer story. It's much deeper. It's multi-leveled. Um, there's more there to see. He's teaching us to see beyond surfaces, to know that there's more going on there that we don't always see. Yeah? Any, any, where do you, Heather, <laughs> Marilyn, Mary Jo, oh, there, Mary Jane, you're back. Tina, where did all you guys go? Um, I'm sorry, kids came home and it's chaos over here. <laughs> <laughs> you, you, don't, you, don't, you don't have to say more. You don't have to say any more. Tell, tell your kids to sit down and have a lesson in ancient, ancient poetry. Okay. Um, book 10. We are not going to get through tonight. Book 10. Um, Aeneas is returning to camp after he's... So he met with Evander... And Evander um, sent him to um, the Etruscans um, to ask for their help. Mazentius was the king of the Etruscans at one time, but remember he was such a barbarous king. To punish people, he would tie them together so that they were face to face and let them rot in death so that they would decay into each other. And it was a brutal man and and finally the people um, um, chased him away and it's the um, Etruscans the Lydians who have oh bless your soul it's the um, Etruscans the um, Lydians here Doc have so I will I have to go to the bathroom um, who are waiting for a king they received a prophecy that the king that would come to rule them would come from another land. So here's one more prophecy. Remember, um, Latinus had the prophecy that his daughter would have to marry somebody from a foreign land. Here's the really one of the interesting things about that we haven't touched on. Amata so wanted Lavinia, her daughter, to marry Turnus, that what she did is twist that prophecy and try to make it seem as if Turnus had come from another land. So it's just another instance of a blasphemy where a human being will use the gods for their own purposes. Um, but so we had Latinus's prophecy concerning his daughter. Then we get this prophecy from the Etruscans that a man would come from a foreign country. So after Aeneas meets with Evander, he goes to the Lydians and they make a pact and the um, Etruscans um, offer to serve him. So Aeneas now is on his way home with these ships, with all the, the Arcadians that, that um, Evander entrusted to him. His son Pallas is the leader of them. It's so important to remember that name. His son Pallas, it was his only son. It was the son he loved more than anything. Um, he's too old to fight, but he sends his son, and his son is, wants to be in that fight. He wants to help Aeneas. So the um, Arcadians are with them. And now the um, Etruscans are with them. So we've got um, 
several different peoples, the Volscians, the Rutulians, and, and the Latins joining against Aeneas, the Trojans, the Arcadians, and the Etruscans. So we've got multiple peoples lining up now for this war. Okay, is everybody okay on that? Latin, um, the Latins, Turnus, um, and um, the Volscians, and with Camilla, the, the, the um, Amazon leader, all joining together against the Trojans, the Arcadian, and the um, Etruscans. When Aeneas is returning in his ships, the nymphs approach him, and they turn and get behind him and tell the story of what happened and give them a push into the land so that one of the, it's just funny, one of the ships crashes and the men come out and Turnus and the men immediately turn on them. So the war engages. All of Aeneas's men are back. Um, Turnus gathers his, his men and there is this vicious all-out war. Okay, but here's where I want to go for a second. Um, in book 10, about line 640. Sorry. So Pallas, Evander's young son, this brave young kid, remember he belongs to this Arcadian world. It's more pastoral. It's removed from the city. It doesn't have the arrogance of Turnus or the pride of that kind of city. Page 310, book, uh, book 10, about line 640 or so. Um, and Pallas confronts Turnus. By my father's welcome in the feast to which you came, a stranger Hercules, now lend your help to my great effort here, I pray. Let Turnus dine, see me take his blood-stained arms and bear the sight of me, his conqueror. Hercules heard him. He's saying a prayer. Remember, they were, they were honoring Hercules when Aeneas first arrived. Deep in his heart he quelled a mighty groan and let the vain tears flow. At this the Olympian father addressed his son in kindness. Every man's last day is fixed. Lifetimes are brief, but not to be regained. All men are going to die. But by their deeds, sorry, but by their deeds to make their fame last, that is labor for the brave. Below the walls of Troy, so many sons of gods went down. Among them, yes, my child, Sarpanon. Turnus, too, is called by fate. He stands at the given limit of his years. So the two are going to um, confront each other, and um, Turnus will kill Pallas on page 311. Um, looming above him, Turnus called Arcadians, note well, and take back to Evander what I say in that state which his father merited. I said, now remember, remember the taunting of that man to the, the Trojans in the fort and what Ascanius did. Now just think about this because um, it's the um, it's the Rutulians who are doing the taunting, not the Trojans. He kills Pallas, this young youth, plunges a, um, his weapon in him, and then he stands over them, taunting the Arcadians. Arcadians know well and take back to Evander what I say. In that state which his father merited, I send back Pallas, and I grant in full what honor tombs confer, what consolation comes of burial. No small price you'll pay for welcoming Aeneas. As he spoke, 
He pressed with his left foot upon the dead and pulled away the massive weight of sword belt graven with pictured crimes that company Egyptus's son killed by Danus's daughters. Young men murdered one night on a wedding feast, their nuptial beds bloodstained. Eurydice's son, Clonus, had chastened the images in gold. So he, he sees this booty, this beautiful sword belt on Pallas, and rips it off. So he's standing on the boy, putting his foot on the boy, and taking off the sword belt and taunting the Trojans. Okay? Um, hold on, going over. Sorry, I've got to find these pages. Um, Aeneas is going to meet Mezentius in war. Remember, he's this brutal man on page 319. Meanwhile, hot-hearted Mezentius joined the fight, being by Jove alerted, and he drove against the cheering Trojans. Now, he's going to go against Aeneas, um, but when he's in danger of being killed, his son Lausus comes to defend him. Page 323. Now remember, this is this brutal man. This is a hateful, hateful man. And his son right now comes to his rescue. Page 323. Now Lausus groaned at the sight for love of his dear father, and down his cheeks the tears rolled. Here indeed I shall not fail to tell you that hard death you came upon, and of your heroism, if, if ancientness for a great act wins belief. And of your memorable self, young soldier, Mezentius had begun to back away, disabled, hampered, dragging on his shield the enemy's spear, when in a lightning move the young man threw himself into the fight. So right now, his son comes between them to save his father. Remember, this is not a good man. On page 324, so Aeneas and Lausus now fight. Lausus is trying to protect his father from being killed by Aeneas. <clears throat> 324 at the top. Um, Aeneas says, 324, sorry you guys. <clears throat> Why this rush deathward, daring beyond your power? Filial piety makes you lose your head. He's trying to warn the kid off. But Lausus all the same leapt to the clash beside himself. Now in the Darden captain anger boiled up higher, the parquet wound, the thread of Lausus to the end. His, the, the fates of calling it to a close. Aeneas drove his tough sword through the young man's body up to the hilt. For it pierced the half-shield light, defense for one so menacing. And in the shirt his mother had woven him soft cloth of gold, so blood filled up the folds of it. His life now left his body for the air and went in sorrow to the shades. But seeing the look on a young man's faith in death, so pale, so pale as to be awesome, then Anchises' son. So it's not Aeneas, it's the son of a father. I hope you're not missing those things, right? Because he just killed the son of a father. So Virgil's identifying him not as Aeneas, it's the son of Anchises. And Anchises' son groaned in profound pity. He held out his hand as feely piety, mirrored here, wrung his own heart and said, O poor young soldier, how will Aeneas reward your splendid fight? How honor you in keeping with your nature? Keep the arms, God, how can you read this? I can't see, Augustine. 
Augusta would weep when he read Virgil. I, I can't believe he didn't read this scene and weep. He held out his hand as filial piety mirrored here, wrung his own heart and said, O poor young soldier, how will Aeneas reward your splendid fight? How honor you in keeping with your nature? Keep the arms you love to use, for I return you to your forebears, ash and shades, if this concerns you now, unlucky boy. One consolation for said death is this, you die by the sword thrust of great Aeneas. Then giving Laus's troops a sharp rebuke, he's giving the, um, the Rutulians a rebuke. These are his enemy, saying, pick this boy up. This is to his enemy. For hanging back, he lifted from the ground the dead man as he lay, his well-combed hair soaked with blood, and he allows the men to take him off. Now, go on over. Mezentius, this cruel father, hears the news of what just happened to his son on page 325, and notice what he did. 325, about line 1180. Did such pleasure in being alive enthrall me, son, that I allowed you, whom I sired, to take my place before the enemy's sword? Am I your father, saved by your wounds? By your death do I live? I, now at the end, exile is misery to me. Now the wound of it goes deep. There's more, my son. I stained your name with wickedness, driven out as I was under a cloud. Um, go down. I should have given my guilty life up, suffered every death. I still live. I live still. Not yet have I taken leave of men in daylight, but I will. He goes out to fight Aeneas, and Aeneas slays him. Now let me let me stop here for a minute. Take um, Lausus. Um, is there anything like what happens between Lausus as a son and Aeneas as a son in the Iliad or Odyssey? And what's the difference? Compare this scene with any, you pick it, Iliad, Odyssey. What's Virgil do with this that makes it different? Thank you. Do you have a thought? No, I haven't read it recently enough. You have what? I haven't read it recently enough. You don't have to. No. Heather, are your kids... Go ahead. Melody, go ahead. I think of uh, when Achilles lost his cousin and, and went out knowing he had to sacrifice himself um, to end the war. That he felt guilty that his it was his cousin, right? I can't. You're remember. talking about Patroclus, his uh, friend. Patroclus, yes. yeah, right. Um, Achilles felt so guilty for not getting back into the war, and that his cousin died because of him, or whoever Patroclus died because of him, and so he went back in knowing he was going to die. It was kind of a self a sacrifice, but because of his guilt feelings. Yeah. Do we ever see anybody in the Iliad or the Odyssey show this kind of tenderness to an enemy? No. It doesn't happen. God, it stuns me. I, I don't know how Virgil could not have read the Old Testament, and I almost feel like he read the New Testament when it hadn't been written yet. 
That's how I feel about it. He's, he's loving this boy. He admires this young kid for his courage and scolds his enemy soldiers saying, what are you waiting? Pick this young man up and honor him. And it's, it's like it's what happens at the end of Hamlet. Or If you've seen The Gladiator, you know how the woman comes out and scolds the women and says, was Rome worth one man's life? Then prove it. Pick this man up and honor him. Um, so I don't think, we, I mean, here again, this is so different. I, and I cannot, I cannot see how Virgil could have, I mean, if, if the inspiration, I mean, it's just hard not to see the spirit in this, but it's also hard not to see that he saw the best of the Old Testament, that God, even if God got angry at enemies and wanted to see them killed, because he did, you know, when the, when the Jews were coming into the Promised Land, he had to fight all these people who worshipped Baal, so God's not romanticizing anything. Worshiping these evil demons are bad. So the Jews had to kill them. But so it's clear that Yahweh um, um, supported killing where people were idolatrous and you know killing babies and kids and whatever people did. Um, he somehow saw a love and a mercy in this God. Um, because for as much as he got from Homer, you can't find anything like this in Homer. It's absolutely new. Um, let's go back to Mezentius. This is a, um, a vicious, barbarous man. He, um, he's fighting Aeneas. His son comes in to defend him and gets killed. And then when Mezentius learns that his son died, he said... Did such pleasure in being alive and throw me, son, that I allowed you, whom I sired, to take my place? He's so shamed that he says, I should have given my life up, suffering every death. I still live. Not yet have I taken leave of man in daylight. But he will. He goes out to fight. It's the first sort of brave thing he does in his life. What's happening? Here, let me put it back. Let me, let me step back for a minute. This is the heart of the war between the two peoples. It's going to end shortly in Book 10. Um, 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 Aeneas is going to ask for time to bury the dead. He wants to leave the Etruscans time to bury their dead, and he wants the Trojans to have time to bury their dead, and, and, and particularly Pallas. He sends Pallas back to um, Evander, in this long procession of men, he's trying to honor this young boy. When Evander receives his son back, he weeps. I mean, it's just a very, very tender time. But there's this temporary truce to bury the dead, to honor, to honor soldiers who have given their lives. And you know that in Book 11, um, the, there will be these councils and men will return to war and it will get closer to the end of the book. But for right now, step back. What's happening in these scenes in which, in which we see the two armies coming together um, to fight, and we get these, these death scenes involving princes? Evander, Evander's son is Pallas. He's killed. Lausus is the son of Mezentius. He's killed. Mezentius uh, is killed. Um... What's happening? Is, um, is there anything odd going on in the way that Virgil presents this? 
do we kind of have to get rid of some of the people who would be rulers uh, in order for them to come together um, under Aeneas later in Rome? Would that contention have gone on if they still had these other people? My, my response to that is I, it's hard to say about Lausus and because we don't know much about him. We know a lot more about his mm -hmm. father than we do him. Mm -hmm. But everything Pallas does is so good that it, I think it's fairly clear that he would have been a great ruler. I yes. think once again, Virgil is not romanticizing things here. He's not, he's not sparing good. You know, here's this, I mean, here's the cost of the war. That, that war, I mean, I said it again and again, that he's so honest about the brutality of things here. And to me, this is one of his splendid treatments of it, you know, that he's done everything to show how glorious this kid is. His father was too old to go. He wanted to go. He, during their voyage back, there are those scenes where he's talking with Aeneas and wants to learn from him about war and what they're doing. And I don't see anything vainglorious. I mean, he's not a, he's not like Turnus. Um, he's not going to taunt people or put his foot on anybody. You know, he's just a good kid. But he died. Turnus is a it, what in in one sense it shows Turnus is an extraordinary war. He kills the kid. But the difference is clear. You know, Turnus is arrogant, um, blasphemous in a way. He puts his foot on the kid, and I can't see Pallas doing anything like that. He's a he's a good young. I think I think Aeneas is. I mean, Virgil's doing that. Um, it's interesting to me that he doesn't make either side look like all glorious or the other side all evil or anything like that yeah yeah i'd see more visibly evil the, the i mean you know if you put the stockade scene together and turnus is the leader and latinus is a king who withdraws there are so many flaws i mean i'm saying this pretty seriously because you can get lost in the battle but there's so many things the um the Rutilians do that Latinus does in resigning himself, not dealing with problems. Turnus, who's, who fills that void and is inflated in his ego. I cannot see Aeneas allowing any of his men. He, he, this, this, this is a different... Remember, these people have been trying for seven, eight years to found a city. They are determined, they are humbled, they're weathered. I cannot see Aeneas letting any of his men do this. That's not what Rome is. If, if any of these men defeat, I mean, look at Aeneas. He picks up this dead body and says, honor him. If Rome means anything, as it's, you know, the meaning has been emerging in all these books, Rome means you put yourself and your pride away. You may have to kill people, but you don't do it in vainglory or taunting. Uh, the better, I mean, the, probably the better way to say this is Aeneas didn't want to kill this kid. He did not want to, when, he, when he's dead, he almost weeps over him. He did not want to do that. He had to do that. He's in the middle of a battle. Um, he, so he doesn't taunt him. He doesn't shame him. He honors him. He does everything he can to protect the goodness of this kid. So I can't see the Trojans. I mean, it's not black-white. You know, they're not lily. I mean, war is going on. People are killing each other. But there's a dignity and a spirit of humility and a sense of purpose to these Trojan men that so many of these other armies just don't have. 
They're, they're more violent, more passionate, more vainglorious. Their egos are more involved. Um, there's something more selfless generally in what the Trojans are doing, particularly under leader, I mean, under Aeneas's leadership. Here, I'm going to, any other comments about what's going on? Because I think there's something going on here that knocks me to my, knocks me to my knees. Um, any other thoughts about what's happening when you put these scenes together? I had one thought as I read this. Turnus was, to me, an example of doing things for honor and out of spite, which harkened back to Homer. Right. I heard, sorry, so yeah. harkened back to what? To, to Homer. To oh, the, yeah. Not, not all bad. I don't mean everything right, right. bad. Yes. Doing things for booty, for honor, for instead of a, a greater good, Aeneas did not start the war. Right. I mean, he responded. Right. That's true. Right. But he didn't. He didn't. He, he tried to come. He tried to come in peace. Right. It was his destiny. Right. He was following right. the orders of the gods and right. the prophecies and so on. Yeah. So I just saw Turnus as this kind of kickback figure, and it doesn't belong in the new Rome. Yeah. Yeah. I. Yeah. I. I think you're so right. So you're right on. And I would only add, I mean, he's a kickback to Homer for sure. Well, but go ahead. Sorry, go ahead. No, no, go on. No, no, go on. I, I'm probably going to agree with you. Not to the heroes. I don't mean that. But to more the philosophy, the why you do things part. Yeah. I would only add that that he does look back to that world for the vainglory. And, you know, but there's also something darker because of Electo. Yeah. That there, um, and, and Amitai, there's just Homer... Virgil sees a depth of spiritual evil in people, and he gives a name to it. Um, so, Turnus does look back to that that masculine heroic code that's full of vainglory that Achilles tried to answer, you know, step out of. That's what the Iliad's about. It's about a man stepping out of that and bringing something new. I mean, I, you know from the beginning, I'm trying to do everything I can this is so important to me. I, I do not want to lose sight of everything good in the Iliad because I think it's an extraordinary book. Same with the Odyssey. When you read that and come out of it, you have to say Achilles is this extraordinary figure. He steps out of that masculine code. Hector doesn't. That's why at the end, Hector is paralyzed. He cares more about what people think about him than Achilles doesn't. Achilles is so detached himself in in a way that I think is so hard for most of us, I think, to appreciate, because it's hard to do. He steps out of it. Odysseus is out of it. Um, so I, I want to try to hold on to everything I can that I think is good there. But I think Home Virgil sees something much darker, and I think he sees a different kind of heroism that's greater. Um, it's much closer to Christ, even though Christ isn't on the scene. I, it's hard, harder the older I get to read this without believing that, that Virgil had access to Old Testament, Isaiah, the, the prophets, he had a sense of something to come that he believed that was real, that allowed him to show the city for everything good about it and know that it wasn't enough, that something else was coming. That's so at the heart of this work. Anyway, let me suggest what I'm seeing. What I'm seeing on this battlefield is... <laughs> You guys may strongly disagree with me here. What I'm seeing in this battlefield is the coming of love. 
There's something so self-sacrificing. Laosus, God, I mean, you, you don't get close to this in the Iliad Odyssey. Laosus is coming in to defend his father when his father does not deserve it at all, at all. Pallas is trying to be a good young man, gives up his life. Pallas wants to come in and save, or sorry, Laosus wants to come in and save his father. Aeneas does not want to kill this kid. He almost weeps at the loss of this goodness. That's much closer to Christ than anything I'm aware of in the ancient world. It's right next to him. Love your enemy. He did not want to kill this kid. He expresses nothing but sorrow. Let me, I mean, let me just you know, briefly read over those lines again. Where was it? Can anybody help me if, if you got the... Um, here, on page 324. Um, o poor young soldier, how will Aeneas reward your splendid fight? The egos of the Greek warriors would have never let them. Give me a line like that in Iliad, the Odyssey. You won't find it. How will Aeneas reward your splendid fight? How honor you in keeping with your nature? Keep your arms you love to use. God, Turnus rips the belt off. Aeneas, keep your arms. God, I mean, it's love. If I mean, give it a name. I, if there's another name, I don't know it. For I return you to your forebears, ash and shades. If this concerns you now, unlucky boy, when consolation for sad death is this, you die by a sword thrust of great Aeneas. And then he rebukes the troops. I don't think that's a self-flattering. I think it's a way of trying to affirm the good of the boy when he says, if there's any consolation in this, that you died by, you know, he's, he's showing this young kid was good. And then what happened, Mezentius, here's the key, here's the kicker. Mezentius has been cruel all of his life, his entire life. And then he learns that his son has died for him. And he says, sorry, what was it, 324? Should have sorry. Did such pleasure in being alive enthrall me that I allowed you, whom I desired to take my place? I should have given my guilty life up, suffering every death. I live still. I'm still alive. Not yet have I taken leave of men in daylight, but I will. He's giving up his life. He's learned from his son to love. So, let me put it this way. We've been watching Aeneas um, move closer and closer to Rome. Yeah? And we've seen the cost of it. There's not a chapter we read in which Aeneas doesn't have to lose something. Again and again and again and again. Be defeated. He has to go to war when he doesn't want to go to war. But he has to. And when he does, he brings to it this that same spirit. He brings it to the kid when he honors Lausus after he's killed him. And when Mezentius finds that his son has died, he's transformed. It's like a Christian conversion that somebody saw something good involving it and it turns you. Something's happening on this battlefield that shows something new is entering Italy. It's affecting the enemy. There will be a resolution at the end. I mean, I've got, we've got to get to the ending. I don't want to get there for those of you who haven't read it. But, but something's happening. 
Something is coming. These converging realities, all these prophecies. I mean, think about this. God, it just amazes me. If you read the Old Testament, you can't read it without hearing prophecies from a hundred different directions. People who didn't know each other, different places, different times, all going. Virgil's showing us these converging realities, prophecies everywhere, and then suddenly on a field of battle, we're watching princes die, princes fight. They have to fight for what they believe in. But Aeneas is bringing a new spirit to, to these battles that we've never seen before. It's one more indication that this Rome will not come into existence without wars. Wars will have to be fought. Evil will have to be answered. There's no way to evade the wars. The evil is there. We've seen it at work. So you can't romanticize about it. But in dealing with this evil, a new spirit is, is making itself present. So something as extraordinary is taking place right now. Let me stop. I, we've got, I'm sorry, I thought we'd finish, but we've got two more chapters. I do not want to rush because this is such an important, and it's a positive note, and I'd like to end on it. So let me, let me instead of rushing at the end the way I too often do, let me stop. Do you guys have any questions or comment on what's going on about what's taking place in, in this chapter? We're, we've only got a couple of chapters left, so. I have a question about something I've been thinking about that yeah. you mentioned last week. Good. Um, yeah. About the labyrinth. So to think of as a symbolic, the reason that it's at the beginning of the story is to maybe think of the labyrinth as symbolic of the city. In other words, man creates the city, which is an elaborate construction to try and contain the animalism the piece, right. of man. Yeah. Wow, that's good. Yeah, no, go ahead. I mean, go ahead. You want to add more to that? It's. I, I mean, I. I think that's a wonderful that image, Heather. A reasonable and like analogy. That that that's what the city is, right? It's, right. It's a giant, yeah, like complicated, really involved um, construction created by man after the fall and to help foster civilization. You know, I honestly, I can't say that Virgil had that on his mind, but I think your analysis is perfectly faithful. I mean, it's a, it's, I think it's a good image of what we're talking about. So, I, I mean, I think that's a wonderful way to look at it. I, you know, from what I've said, that I generally look at it as an image of human consciousness. But for you to, for you to take that step is really good for me, because human consciousness never exists in isolation. It's always trying to construct a world for itself. Right. So in one sense, it's a, it's a good analogy of human consciousness as it, as it tries to answer this, this, mon this beast of lust you know, um, in man and in a woman um, at the heart of the city. Just, just to sort of go there, but it's not quite the same, but to build on it, if you'll let me for a second, because I, I just love what you just did. Suzanne and I have been watching The Fellowship, or no, The Hobbit, and we've been watching Smaug, the second one, you know. And I've, I've always believed, from the first time I saw it, that when um, um, Bilbo goes into the underground, you know, with all the wealth, my take on that, my take on that is that's the buried wealth of 
kingdoms. It's the amassed, it's the amassed wealth of kingdoms. So underneath every kingdom with its corruptions, it's not just the labyrinth and the bull, because I, I love your, you know, your M, but underneath it is this um, avarice and greed and this wanting power. And so when I look at that, that underground cavern with all that wealth, to me, to me, it's an image of what's underneath every city. Grapevine, South Lake, New York. I mean, Grapevine people are not going to like me saying that, but I believe that. That underneath this, if, if we ever, I've thought about doing a Conrad's Heart of Darkness. If, if you go into the Heart of Darkness by Conrad, what you find is this cannibalism. And, but that's, not, by, by the way, we're going we're gonna to get there very shortly. That's Dante. That's what hell is. So I've always thought it was one of, for me, Tolkien's reading of the amassed riches of the centuries underlying all the cities, that there's this spoil, you know, and the dragon sits over it. So it's not a minotaur, it's not a bull, but it's, it's just another image of, you know, what you're coming at through the, it may not fit with what you're doing, but it's just another way of, I think it's sort of describing what you're doing um, in, a, in a little bit different way, because I couldn't agree with you more, couldn't agree with you more. And that's interesting but that you mentioned that because Thorin's grandfather, who had helped amass all of that wealth and had helped create it, his dwarves had helped create it, he is corrupted by it before Smaug even comes on the picture. So it's already cursed. And right. I think he challenges that classical concept that hordes of wealth are cursed by the dragons. In actuality, the curse exists prior to unless you say unless, well unless you say that the dragon was before he's always there i think the, i think of the dragon as an image of satan yes. I, I i don't want to go into that but um where is i going um oh just to I'll go along with what you're saying i think the dragon is an image of satan fire and power and destruction and greed and just to destroy but um when bilbo's uncovered in the cave there i i, I hope we're not talking past anybody. I don't know if all you guys have seen. If you haven't seen it, you should see it. But but when Bilbo's uncovered, the dragon, Smaug says to him, um, he takes away all Bilbo's lies when Bilbo's trying to get out of there. And he says, I know what you're up to because the dwarves put you up to. And what's the king's name? Thorin. Thorin. He says, Thorin. Thorin. Thorin's behind this. And he says, I don't remember his words, but the, the drifter was, I'll let him come because I know it's only going to corrupt him too. And we know that at that moment, Thorin is closer to corruption. He's been all along. Yeah. I mean, he's a good king, but, but he has flaws. And as, as you get to that opening of the door and going into that place, the corruption takes hold. When he comes down here into the cave, with, I mean, it, it's gone. So the dragon was only saying what he already knew. It was only a matter of time when the gold was there because his greed as the king of the dwarves, and the dwarves are known for their greed, was already gone. Um, the dragon was always there before. I mean, he's an archetype image of something prior to the greed that's always at work with men, I, I think. But I, I think the, the hordes of spoils is an image of something that underlies most cities that most people don't want to look at, but... I love your analogy with the, you know, what you're doing in the labyrinth. Someday I'd like to sit in on one of your classes. <laughs> Hopefully when we go back online. 
So we took a break this year because Seas isn't allowing um, anybody to meet up there, and it was going to be too much logistics to try and figure out. So we took a break this year, and hopefully we'll be able to go back to it next year. Yeah, we just hope, just hope. Yeah. Yeah. Um, listen, a couple before I, I wasn't wasn't on my mind. Um, I don't know what we're going to do about going back or staying, but for now, let's just stay. Um, some people have written about making donations. I think I may have mentioned something in my letter. You guys all have our address, I think, if you want to make donations. But Mike has set up the blog so that if you go to the Literature's Prophecy, at the top there there's an option for donations. So if anybody you want to help out with any of that, we're we're glad <coughs> we're glad to have your help. And um, if any of you have, I I'm seriously thinking. After we do Boethius, um, and the only reason I'm not doing it before Boethius is because I didn't say anything to you guys because I didn't have the idea then. But um, actually, in my mind right now, I'd like to do it for Boethius, but I, I don't want to, you know, um, spring this on you. But I think after we do Boethius, it's it's a very short work. It's not going to take long. We're gonna we're gonna do Dante. Dante is going to take a long time. The Inferno, the Pur Purgatory, and the prepared so to do any justice to those is going to take some time. I think what I'd like to do is take an evening off where you guys don't do any reading and we have a chance to talk about this pagan world before we leave it. Because I'd really love to hear, you know, what this all means. You, you guys have, you're all strange people. You should know that because you're, um, you know, you're you're stepping into a pre-Christian world um, when a lot of people wouldn't. Um, I'd like to hear what this all means to you before we before we enter the Catholic Middle Ages, before we look at Dante and squarely at our church. So, just to let you know, I it's that's a thought. I'd 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 like to take an evening. If it ends up being more, I'd like to be glad to take a couple. But I I think it'd be good to just step back from this pagan world before we leave it. So if you have any thoughts on that, let me know. Write, write us an email, okay? Okay? Any last comments about Virgil or what we're doing? We have one. So next week, I'll plan to take the last. I should be able to do it in the first hour. So what I'd like to do next week is plan to finish the Aeneid, and then I'll start Boethius. So I'll just give some background information on Boethius and the story and, you know, we'll, we'll probably look at the opening few pages just to get us going. But we'll start for sure, even if even it's just a brief introduction. Um, there's lots, I mean, I, I, we're not going to take a lot of time on Boethius, but the things that I do have to tell you about Boethius I think you'll find interesting. Because it's very much, at the source of it is very much this conflict between the Latin and Greek worlds in Rome and in Constantinople, because you know the, the center of power moved from Rome to um, Constantinople, and there was this strong tension between the Greek and Roman worlds for centuries. And if you know your history, you know that in the 11th century, um, it led to the schism. I mean, it's presented as if we're over the filioque, you know, the, the relationship of the spirit to the father and son. But I think there were political um, issues of pride and things. Um, 
we're not going to go into that, but it, I just, it, Boethius, I think, was a victim of that in some ways. So I'll just say a little bit about him as a person, and we'll, we'll start um, the consolation. It's, I, think, I think you're going to be surprised. It's a very, very short book, but its wisdom is amazing. Truly amazing. Truly amazing. Easy to read. Very easy to read. Um, anyway, any more, any comments or last thoughts before we leave? You all look so pensive and so thoughtful today. I, sometimes I got nervous about asking you questions because I didn't want to disturb you. You all look so... Okay, um, it's good to see you all. Um, keep up the good work you're doing, you guys. Just keep it up. Um, if you would all keep all of us in your prayers, all of us, we could keep each other in our prayers. Um, there's a lot going on, I know. So, Okay, you guys have a good week. We'll see you next week, okay? Thank you. Bye. Bye. Thank you. Bye. Thank you. Thank you. I'm feeling more and more like I need to get you out of here. Get me out of here. Maybe. Yeah, I'll just... Um, mm.